to the Quarantine Players Podcast. We are a group of writers, directors, and actors who had our productions canceled due to the pandemic. Each week, we'll read a new play and discuss it with a playwright, just like Shakespeare. We aspire to create new work during a global pandemic. Fisherman's wife blush and probably smokes too. She's not one of us. And you were right there though, mind you, it's pretty hard to tell nowadays. There now, I believe I've shocked you again. You've been dug out of the backwoods you have. Not that I mind that, we could do with a few more of your sort. I just hate a fellow who gets fresh. It makes me mad. What are you like when you're mad? A regular little devil. Don't care what I say or what I do either. I nearly did a chap in once, yes, really. He'd have deserved it too. Italian blood I've got. I shall get into trouble one of these days. Well, don't get mad with me. I shan't. I like you. Do the first moment I had laid eyes on you. But you looked so disapproving that I never thought we would make friends. Well, we have. Tell me something about yourself. I'm an actress. No, not the kind you're thinking of. One of those fancy how-do-you-do types, all wearing jewelry and always saying how much they love Madame So-and-So's face cream. I've been on the board since I was a kid. Tumbling. I beg your pardon. Well, haven't you ever seen an acrobat before? Oh, oh I understand. I'm American-born, but I've spent most of my life in England. Oh, we got a new show now. We? And my sister and I. Sort of a song and dance, a bit of a patter, a dash of the old business thrown in. It's quite a new idea and it hits them every time. There's to be money in it, which can't be ignored. One must find a way to both take care of herself and still make good in the world. I'm boring you, aren't I? Oh, uh, not at all. I admire your approach to life. Is yours different? You went through the... The Great War, I suppose? Pretty well. I was wounded once after the Somme. They invalided me out altogether. I did an odd job or two in the army for a bit. Sort of a part-time private secretary now for a legal firm. Oh my, that's brainy. No, it isn't. There's really awfully little to do. It's dull work too. In fact, I don't know what I should do if I hadn't got something to fall back upon. Don't say you collect bugs. No, I share rooms with a very interesting man. He's a Belgian, an ex-detective. He's set up as a private detective in London, and he's doing extraordinarily well. He's really a marvelous little man. He's actually who I'm going to see right now in France. He paid for this train ticket and everything, so... I might as well vacation in the French countryside at his expense. <laughs> Isn't that interesting now? Oh, I just adore crime. I go to all the mysteries on the movies. And when there's a murder on, I just devour the papers. Have I heard of your friend, perhaps? Uh, his name is uh, Hercule Poirot. Oh, from the Styles case? Oh, my. When the old lady was poisoned down in Essex? The same. Oh. I believe that's the station. Oh, my goodness gracious me. Uh, where did I put all my things? I I'd better hurry off. 
goodbye. And I'll mind my language better in the future. Oh, oh, but surely we'll see each other on the connecting boat. Mightn't be on the boat. I've got to see whether that sister of mine got aboard after all anywhere. But thanks all the same. Oh, but, but we're going to meet again. Surely. I, um, I want to meet your sister. <laughs> well, that, that's real nice of you. I'll tell her what you say, but I don't fancy we'll meet again. You've been very good to me on the journey, especially after I checked you as I did. But what your face expressed first thing is quite true. I'm not your kind, and that brings trouble. I know that well enough. So goodbye. Aren't you even going to tell me your name? Cinderella. <laughs> Scene two. Poirot paces around the living room of the Via Genevieve. Upon the upper stage right lies a door next to a window. A small table with four chairs sits on the stage left side of the room. It is scattered with papers. A paper knife sits among them. A rug lays in the entrance, slightly crooked. A staircase on stage left runs up and turns out of sight. Next to the bottom of the staircase on the wall is a small hanging bell. Hastings enters, Poirot approaches him and hugs him, which makes Hastings slightly uncomfortable. Hastings, but you are here on fire. Poirot, I, I came as soon as I could. Those servants were behaving rather odd, don't you think? They let me in after I told them I was with you, but told me to stay in this room. If I didn't know better, I'd say they seemed panicked. I believe that I do know better. Something is not right at Via Genevieve. I have a feeling that this is going to be a big affair, a long troublesome problem that will not be easy to work out. What are you talking about? You weren't very clear in your letter. We shall see. Did you see that young goddess? That young lady right next door? She was watching by the gate as I came up to the house. Sakomans, already you have seen a goddess. But hang it all, wasn't she? Possibly, I did not remark the fact. Surely you noticed her. Mon ami, two people rarely see the same thing. You, for instance, saw a goddess. I... Yes? I saw only a girl with anxious eyes. I think you are falling into the habit of despising certainly obvious facts too much. I prefer to focus on what is important and not simply what others think is so. Let the experts deal with their facts and minute details, their fingerprints and footprints, cigarette ash, different kinds of mud. Don't you think those of vital importance? But certainly. I've never said otherwise. The trained observer, the expert, without doubt he is useful. But the others, the Hercule Poirots, they are above the experts. You have, hunted, you have hunted the fox, yes? I have hunted a bit, now and again. Why? Eh bien, this, this hunting of the fox. You need the dogs, no? Hounds. Yes, of course. But yet you did not descend from your horse and run along the ground, smelling with your nose and barking. <laughs> so you leave the work of the hounds to the hounds. If you demand that I should make myself ridiculous by lying down on damp grass and scooping up cigarette ash and ash when I do not know one kind from the other. Not at all. I, I simply asked if you had noticed that that woman was beautiful. 
That is not my business. Mine above all is the true psychology of the case. That is why I said that she had anxious eyes. What case? You mentioned something in your letter, but you wouldn't tell me what it was. Read this, Hastings, and tell me what you think. He hands Hastings a letter from his pocket. Hastings reads aloud. Dear sir, I am in need of the services of a detective, and for reasons which I will give you later, do not wish to call in the official police. I have heard of you from several quarters, and all reports go to show that you are not only a man of decided ability, but one who also knows how to be discreet. I do not wish to trust details to the post, but a counter-secret I possess. I go in daily fear of my life. I am convinced that the danger is imminent, and therefore I beg that you will lose no time in crossing to France. You will find me at the Villa Genevieve in Merlinville. I am prepared to pay any compensation necessary. I shall probably need your services for a considerable period of time, as it may be necessary for you to go to Santiago, where I spent several years of my life. I shall be content for you to name your own fee. Assuring you once more that the matter is urgent, yours faithfully, P.T. Renaud. And then below the signature, he seems to have scrolled out, for God's sake, come. You see now why I came so quickly? Of course, if we succeed, we shall make our fortunes. Do not be too sure of that, my friend. A rich man and his money are not so easily parted. No, it is not the money which attracts me here. It is the postscript. How did this strike you? Well, clearly he wrote the letter keeping himself well in hand, but at the end his self-control snapped, and on the impulse of the moment he scrawled those four desperate words. You are in error. See you not that while the ink of the signature is nearly all black, that of the postscript is quite pale. Well? Most dear, mon ami, but use your little gray cells. Is it not obvious? Monsieur Renault wrote this letter without blotting it. He reread it carefully, then not on impulse, but deliberately. He added those last words and blotted the sheet. But why? Parble, so that it shall produce the effect upon me that it has upon you. What? <laughs> May we, to make sure of my coming. He reread the letter. I was dissatisfied. He was not strong enough. So, mon ami, since that postscript was added, not on impulse, but soberly in cold blood, the urgency is very great, and it was important we reach him as soon as possible. But now, dear Estes, I am afraid. Afraid of what? I do not know, but I have a premonition, a, a, a je ne sais quoi. Estes, do you see that hearth rug? It is crooked. Every time you see an ornament set out of place or a speck of dust or a slight disarray in one's attire, it is like torture to you, I, I swear. Order and method are your gods. Poirot stands up holding a small piece of paper. In France, as in England, the domestics omit to sweep under the mats. You recognize this as things? A fragment of a check. It's made out to someone named uh, Duvin. You recognize the handwriting, no? Does it not look just like the letter written by Monsieur Renault? I suppose it does, but I don't see why this matters. Since there is no dust, this room must have been done this morning. 
yesterday, possibly last night, Monsieur Renault drew a check to someone named Duvin. Afterwards, it was torn up and scattered on the floor. Bex enters. My dear Monsieur Poirot, I'm delighted to see you. When they told me you were here, I hardly believed them. Your arrival Monsieur. is most opportune. Monsieur Bex, this is indeed a pleasure. This is an English friend of mine, Captain Estings, Monsieur Lucien Bex. Monvo, I have not seen you since 1909. That time in Ostend. I heard that you had left the force. Ah, uh, so I have. I run a private business in London. But what brought you here? How did you get here so quickly? Uh, we have an appointment with Mr. Renault. Th this is his villa, isn't it? Yes, Monsieur. But... But what? Is that not why you are here? Monsieur Renault was murdered this morning. What is it that you say, murdered? When? How? P Poirot, you, you know as well as I that I cannot just go and share police details with someone who is not involved with the crime. No? You were not aware that I had been sent for by letter? No. By whom? The dead man. It seems he knew an attempt was going to be made on his life. Unfortunately, he sent for me too late. Sacre tonnerre. So he foresaw his own mother. That upsets our theories considerably. Our lead detective, Monsieur Gerard, must hear of this at once. You have the letter here, Poirot. Poirot hands him the letter, which he reads. Mm, he speaks of a secret. What a pity he was not more explicit. In light of this, I hope you will do us the honor of assisting us in our investigations. Without doubt, Madame Ronald will also wish to retain your services. Or are you obliged to return to London? I propose to remain. I did not arrive in time to prevent my client's death, but I feel myself bound in honor to discover the assassin. I am sure that you and Monsieur Gerard will be able to give each other mutual assistance in your investigations. He works for the sweater now, but he started his career in your own Scotland Yard. He's familiar to me by name. I hope that you will do me the honor to be present at my interrogations. And I need hardly say that if there's any assistance you require, it is at your disposal. And thank you, Monsieur. You'll comprehend that at the present, I am completely in the dark. I know nothing, whatever. This morning, the old service Francoise, on descending to start her work, found the front door ajar. After checking the silver was safe, she concluded that her master had, without doubt, risen early and gone for his soul. Pardon, Monsieur, for interrupting, but was that a common practice of his? No, it was not, but all Francoise shares the common view of the English, that they are mad and liable to do most unaccountable things at any moment. When the younger, when the younger maid Denise was going to call her mistress as usual, she was horrified to discover her gagged and bound. And almost at the same moment, news was brought that Monsieur Renaud's body had been discovered, stone dead, stabbed in the back. Where? That is the most extraordinary features of the case, Monsieur Perrault. The body was lying, face downwards, in an open grave. What? Yes. The pit was freshly dug just a few yards outside the boundary of the villa grounds. Dr. Durand enters the upper stage right door. He is carrying a glass jar with a dagger in it. I have finished examining the body. Monsieur Gerard has asked that we move it so he can search the area for trace evidence. Excuse me, I do not believe that we have met. 
That is Dr. Duran. He is the doctor we have on call for this sort of affair. Twit Prara here as if he was one of us. A pleasure. Doctor, you say you have examined the body uh, and he has been dead. How long? Death must have taken place at least seven and possibly ten hours previously. Hmm. Given that it is about ten now, that fixes it at between midnight and 3 a.m. Exactly. And Madame Renault's evidence places it that after 2 a.m., which narrows the field still further. The death must have been instantaneous and naturally could not have been self-inflicted. I have brought the dagger that stabbed him for you. They found no fingerprints on it. Dr. Duran hands Bex the jar. Bex sets it on the table. Tell Gerard that he can move the body out of the grave, but leave it by the shed. We still need to bring him in so Madame Renault can identify him. Duran nods and exits through the upstage door. Madame Renault was hastily freed from the cords that bound her by the horrified servants. He was almost unconscious from the pain of her bonds. It appears that the two masked men entered the bedroom at 2 a.m., gagged and bound her, whilst forcibly abducting her husband. Of course, we know only the second hand from the servants. On hearing the tragic news, she fell at once into an alarming state of agitation. On arrival, Dr. Durand immediately prescribed a sedative, and we have not yet been able to question her. And the inmates of the house, monsieur? There is old Francoise, the housekeeper. She lived for many years with the former owners of the Via Genevieve. Then there is the younger girl, a maid, Denise. Her home is in Berlinville, and she comes of the most respectable parents. Then there is the gardener, whom Monsieur Renault brought over from England with him, but he is away on holiday. Finally, there are Madame Renault and her son, Monsieur Jacques Renault. He too is away from home at present. You know as much as we do now. Would you mind staying for the interviews? Of course. Bex leaves, returning shortly with Francoise. He introduces both of them and gesturing to each in turn. This is Francois, Arche, and Denise Wuyard. You have been in the service at the Via Geneve. Eleven years uh, with Madame la Vicomtesse. Uh, then uh, when she saw the Via the Spring, I consented to remain on with the Englishman. Never did I imagine such Without doubt, without doubt. Now, Francoise, in the matter of the front door, whose business was it to fasten it that night? Mine, monsieur, always. I thought with myself. And last night? I fastened it as usual. You are sure of that? I swear it by the blessed saints, monsieur. What time would that be? Uh, the same time as usual, uh, half past ten, monsieur. And what about the rest of the household? Has they gone up to bed? Uh, Madame had retired some time before. Uh, Denise went up with me. Uh, monsieur was still in his study. Then if anyone unfastened the door afterwards, it must have been Monsieur Renault himself. Uh, what should he do that for? Uh, with robbers and assassins passing every minute. Uh, a nice idea. Uh, Monsieur is not an imbecile. Uh, it is not as though he had to let Saddam out. Saddam? What lady do you mean? 
was the lady who came to see him. Had a lady been to see him that evening? Uh, but uh, yes, monsieur, and uh, many other evenings as well. Who was she? Did you know her? Well, I, I, I was not the one to let her in last night, but I, I, I did not. So I did not see her, uh, but um, I know well enough who she was. It was Madame de Brouille. <laughs> Madame de Brouille? From the Via Marguerite the road? That is what I said, monsieur. Ah, oh, she is a pretty one, sailor. Madame de Broya. Impossible. Voila. That is all you get for telling the truth. Not at all. We were surprised, that is all. Madame de Broya, then. I'm sure well, no, they were... It was that without a doubt? Monsieur. He was Milan Anglais, très riche, and Madame de Brouille, she was poor, that one, and très chic, for all that she lives so quietly with her daughter. Oh, no doubt of it, she has had her histoire, history. <laughs> she is no longer young, but ma foi, I will I who speak to you have seen the man's heads turn after her as she goes down the street. Oh, besides, lately, she has had more money to spend. All the town knows of it. Hmm. And Madame Renaud, how did she take this friendship? She was always most amiable, uh, most uh, polite. Uh, one would say that she suspected nothing. Huh. But all the same, is it not so? The heart suffers, monsieur. She was not the same woman who arrived here a month ago, monsieur. Monsieur too has changed. He also had his worries. One could see that he was on the brink of a, a crisis of the nerves. <laughs> and who would wonder, was an affair conducted in such a fashion? No reticence, no discretion. Uh, the style of the English was out doubt. What time was this? Um, she left about uh, 20 minutes after 10. I heard uh, Monsieur 10 minutes after. The stair creaks so that one hears everyone who goes up and down. <laughs> and that is all. You had no sound of disturbance during the night? No windows unfastened or things out of place? Nothing whatsoever, monsieur. Were there perhaps a, a lot of pieces of paper on the floor this morning? Uh, yes, right in the entryway. Well, what did you do with them? <laughs> Put them in the kitchen stove, of course. What else? Ah, very well. Bex looks at him confused. He moves his questioning to Denise. Uh, would you say there was anything odd in your master of late? Every day he became more and more morose. He ate less, he was always depressed. Without doubt, it was the mafia he had on his back. Two masked men, who else could it be? A terrible society, that. It is, of course, possibly. Now, Michael, was it you who admitted Madame de Broye to the house that last night? 
Not last night, monsieur. The night before. Denise! A lady did come to see Monsieur Renault last night, but it was not Madame de Breuil. Have you, have you seen her before? Never, monsieur. But I think she was English. English? One can always tell, n'est-ce pas? Besides, when they came out of the study, they were speaking English. You're making this up, you foolish girl! Did you hear what they said? Could you understand it, I mean? The lady was speaking too fast for me to catch what she said. My English is very good, but I heard Monsieur's last words to her. He said, Yes, yes, but for God's sake, go now. Yes, yes, but for God's sake, go now. You just want to make yourself seem interesting, voila too. Cooking up a fine tale about a strange lady, airing your knowledge of English too. It proves nothing. Madame de Brouille speaks the English perfectly and often used it when talking to Monsieur Renault. I know Madame de Brouille. This woman was dark-haired as well, but shorter and younger. You are mistaken or lying and to the police as well. I am not. Maybe you are just too old to tell. Thank you very much, both, for your assistance. You are both free to go. Denise and Francois move to exit, frustrated with each other. Before she is off stage, Francois turns around, Denise exits. I will tell you one thing, Monsieur, that Madame Drobourg, she is a bad one. Oh, yes, one woman knows about another. She is a bad one, remember that. Francois exits. Poirot begins to frown perplexedly. What is it? Pardon, Monsieur Betts, but when did the gardener take his leave? Only yesterday, after he'd had the day's work. Why do you ask? I wish you would tell me what's worrying you. See you not. Monsieur Renault knew that he would have guests. He invited us and made sure we would come. Why choose yesterday to send away the gardener on a holiday? suddenly at a, a moment's notice when appearances are most important was it for some reason he wanted him out of the way before we arrived i think we have a more pressing matter we have directly conflicting testimony which are we to believe francois or denise denise it was she who let the visitor in francois is old and obstinate and has evidently taken a dislike to madame de Broglie. Besides, our own knowledge tends to show that Renault was entangled with another woman. Tens, I almost forgot to inform you of that. He searches through the papers on the table, then hands one to Poirot. Poirot reads it and then hands it to Hastings. Tell me what you think. It's written in English. My dearest one, why have you not written for so long? You do love me still, don't you? Your letters lately have been so different, cold and strange, and now this long silence. It makes me afraid. If you were to stop loving me, that's impossible. I am always imagining things. But if you did stop loving me, I don't know what I should do. Kill myself, perhaps. Sometimes I fancy another woman is coming between us. Let her look out, that's all. And you too. I'd soon kill you as let her have you. I mean it. 
But there I'm writing high-flown nonsense. You love me and I love you. Yes, love you, love you, love you. Your own adoring, Bella. The assumption is? Obviously, Monsieur Renault wasn't tangled with this English woman, Bella. He comes here and starts an intrigue with Madame de Bruyne. The other suspects something and comes here. The letter contains a distinct threat, Monsieur Poirot. This case seemed like simplicity itself. Even the fact that Monsieur Renault was sat in the back seems to point distinctly to it being a love-ass quarrel. Perhaps. The great criminal is simple, but uh, very few criminals are great. In trying to cover up their tracks, they invariably betray themselves. If a crime seems simple and above board, eh bien, méfiez-vous. It is, how do you say it, cooked. As I said at first sight, this case seems simple. But then we heard of the masked men and the letter you received from Monsieur Renault. There seems to be no correlation between the facts. Do you think your letter was referring to this Bella and her threats? Hardly. That does not seem to be the tone or concern. No, I think we must look for the explanation of the letter. In Santiago, I shall cable without delay and request the further details of the murderous man's life out there. Asking them to withhold no information, it would be strange if after that we do not hold a clue to this mysterious murder. Excellent. And you have found no other letters from this Bella amongst Major Reynolds effects? No. We found nothing of interest in his private papers in the study. The only thing out of the ordinary was his will. Oh, here it is. So, a legacy of a thousand pounds to Mr. Stoner. Who is he, by the way? Mesherano's secretary. He lives in England, but was over here once or twice for a weekend. And everything else left unconditionally to his beloved wife, wife Eloise. Simple but legal, witnessed by Denise and Francoise. Perhaps you did not notice. The date, but yes, I noticed it. Two weeks ago, possibly it marks his first intimation of danger. But it is dangerous to draw conclusions prematurely. It, it points, however, to his having a real liking and fondness for his wife, and in spite of his amorous intrigues. Yes, but it is pos yes, but it is possibly a little unfair on his son. What boy wants to be entirely dependent on his mother? Madame Renault appears at the top of the stairs. Madame Renault, you are awake. She walks down the stairs one at a time, then gestures to the chairs. May I be seated, messieurs. I hope, madame, that it would not distress you unduly to relate to us what occurred last night. Not at all, monsieur. I know the value of time if these scoundrel assassins are to be caught and punished. We, oui. Assailants from the servants. What can you tell us about them? One was very tall and had a long black beard. The other was short and stout. His beard was reddish. They both wore hats pulled down over their eyes. Mm. Too much beard, I fear. You mean they were false? Oui, madame. But continue your story. It was the short man who was holding me. He forced a gag into my mouth and then bound me with rope 
hand and foot. The other man was standing over my husband. He had caught up my little paper dagger knife from the dressing table and was holding it with the point just over his heart. They forced my husband to get up and accompany them into the dressing room next door. I was nearly fainting with terror. Nevertheless, I listened desperately. They were speaking too low for me to hear what they said, but I recognized the language. It was Spanish, such as it is spoken in some parts of South America. Then they got angry, and I heard what they were saying. The secret. Where is it? I don't know what my husband said, but one of them replied, You lie. We know you have it. Where are your keys? Then they passed back through my room, and my husband said, It's all right, Eloise. Do not be afraid. I shall return in the morning. Then they left. Next thing I remember, Denise is rubbing my wrists and giving me brandy. Madame Renault, had you any idea what it was the assassins were searching for, or what this secret was? None whatever, monsieur. Had you any knowledge that your husband feared something? Yes. I had seen a change in him. How long ago was that? Mm, two weeks, perhaps. I could tell something bothered him, but he would not share it with me. Now, madame, I will beg of you to be frank with me. Is there any incident in your husband's past life in South America which might throw light on his murder? Perhaps in Santiago? I cannot think of... I can think of none. I do not say there is no such incident, only that I am not aware of it. And you can fix the time of this outage? Outrage? Yes, I distinctly remember hearing the clock on the mantelpiece strike two. They also knocked a wristwatch off of the dresser, and I heard it smash to atoms. I'll go retrieve it. Bex goes upstairs to Madame Renault's room. Poirot leans forward to ask Madame Renault a few questions, watching her reaction closely. Pardon, but do you know anyone named Duveen? Duveen? No. For the moment, I cannot say that I do. You have never heard our your husband mentioned anyone of that name? Never. Do you know anyone whose Christian name is Bella? Are you aware that your husband had a visitor? No. Who was that? A lady. Indeed. Bex returns holding your wristwatch. It was smashed, all right. Without doubt, the assassins knocked it off the dressing table by accident. Little did they know how it would testify against them. Bex sets it on the table. Hastings picks it up and looks at it. My God. What is it? The hands of the watch point just past 12 o'clock. What? Poirot takes the watch from Hastings and holds it up to his ear. He smiles. The glass is broken, yes, but the watch itself is still going. But surely it's noon now. No, it is a few minutes after 10. Possibly the watch gains. Is that so, madame? What does gain, but I've never known it to gain quite as much as that. Bex takes the glass jar from the table and opens it, pulling out a dagger. Madame, do you recognize this? Yes, 
that is my little dagger. Is that blood? Oui, madame. Your husband was killed with this weapon. He quickly puts it away. You are quite sure about it being the one that was on your dressing table last night? Oh, yes. It was a present from my son. He was in the Air Force during the war. He gave his ages older than it was. This was made from a streamlined airplane wire and was given to me by my son as a souvenir of the war. I see, madame. That brings us to another matter. Your son, where is he now? It is necessary that he should be telegraphed without delay. Jack? Oh, he's on his way to Santiago. Santiago, again, Santiago. Poirot stands up and walks to Madame Renault. Pardon, Madame, but may I examine your wrists? Surprised, Madame Renault holds them out to him. Poirot looks at them, then seems disappointed and puzzled. They must cause you great pain. Young Monsieur Renault must be communicated with at once by wireless. It is vital that we should know anything he can tell us about the, his trip to Santiago. I hoped he might have been near at hand so that we, we could have saved you the, the pain, madame. You mean the identification of my husband's body? I am a strong woman, monsieur. I can bear all that is required of me. I am ready now. Oh, tomorrow will be quite soon enough, I assure you. I prefer to get it over. I'll bring him in. Bex exits through the upstage door, then shortly returns with a stretcher carried by himself and Dr. Duran. On top of the stretcher sits a body covered with a white sheet. They set it on the ground. Madame Renault stands up and walks over to the body. Hastings and Poirot follow. Are you ready, madame? A moment, messieurs, while I steal myself. Madame Renault nods her head. Dr. Duran pulls back the sheet. She suddenly self loses all self-control. Paul. Husband, oh God, oh God. faints. Poirot rushes beside her. He raises the lid of her eye and feels her pulse. Then he lets the doctor try to wake her. Poirot takes Hastings by the arm and pulls him away from the group. I am an imbecile, my friend. If ever there was love and grief in a woman's voice, I heard it then. My little idea was all wrong. Bien, I must start again. Dr. Duran, Dr. Duran, Manages to awaken Madame Renault, but she still seems dazed. I'll take her to her room. Perhaps I have more of the sedative. Let us know when she wakes. I suppose we can take that as positive identification. Parfum. The shock was too much for her. Poirot well, bends down and lifts up the sheet and looks over at the body. He wore only his underclothes under his overcoat, I see. Yes, I thought, I too thought that was a rather curious point. The knife was found inside him? Yes, sticking right out of his back. Poirot stands up and stares at the body. It seems as though he is going to say something dramatic. He does not. He wore his overcoat very long. Scene three. Poirot, Hastings, and Bex enter into the links. On far stage right, there is double doors of a large shed. Next to it, a tall storage cabinet with a lock on it. A bench sits upstage. 
Gerard is on the ground inspecting footprints. My dear Monsieur Gerard, I had no idea that you were still here. The magistrate has been awaiting with utmost impatience for you to give your initial report. Who is this? Hercule Poirot. Oui, Hercule Poirot. A colleague of Monsieur Beck's. You must be the famous Gerard that we have heard about. I know you by name, Monsieur Poirot. You cut quite a figure in the old days, didn't you? The methods are very different now. Crimes, though, are very much the same. The magistrate. A fig for the magistrate. The light is the important thing. For all practical purpose, it only remains optimal for another half hour or so. I know all about the case, and the people in the house will do very well until tomorrow. But if we're going to find a clue to the murderers, here is the spot we shall find it. Is it your police who have been trampling all over the place? A man was murdered right here. I thought they knew better nowadays. Assuredly they do. The marks you complain of were made by the workman who discovered the body. I can see the tracks where the three of them came through the hedge, but they were cunning. You can just recognize the center footmarks as those of Madame Renault, but those on either side have been carefully obliterated. Not that there would really be much to see anyways on this hard ground, but they weren't taking any chances. The external sign, this, that is what you seek, eh? Of course. Why, this is a golf course. The limits are not completed yet. It is hoped to be able to open them sometimes next month. It was some of the men working on them who discovered Zabaldi early this morning. Barreau leans down and picks up a shovel on the ground. That's what the grave was dug with right enough, but you'll get nothing from it. It was Renault's own spade and the man who used it wore gloves. Here they are. Gerard points to, with his foot, at two gloves on the ground. There are nose too, or at least his gardeners. I tell you, the man who planned out this crime were taking no chances. The man was stabbed with his own dagger and would have been buried with his own spade. They counted on leaving no traces, but I'll beat them. There's always something, and I mean to find it. Poirot leans down again, picks up a lead pipe. And does this too belong to the murdered man? May have been lying around here for weeks. Anyways, it doesn't interest me. I, on the contrary, find it very interesting. Gerard turns away rudely and bends down, inspecting the ground for minute clues. We've no time to waste. If you can't be helpful, at least be scarce. Poirot's struck by an idea. He goes and tries to open the garage door. That's locked, but it's only a place where the gardener keeps his rubbish. The spade didn't come from there, but from the shed right next to you. Poirot peeks inside the shed. He then observes the surroundings as a whole. Monsieur Bex, tell me, I pray you, the meaning of this whitewashed line that extends all around the grave. Is that a device of the police? No, Monsieur Poirot. It is an affair of the golf course. It shows that there is here to be a bunker, as you call it. A bunker? It's a hole filled with sand, usually with a bank on one side. You do not play the golf, Monsieur Poirot. I? Never! What a game! Figure to yourself, each hole is of a different length, 
the obstacles, they are not arranged mathematically at all. There's only one pleasing thing. Uh, the, how do you call them? Uh, the boxes. They at least are symmetrical. <laughs> but Monsieur Renault, without doubt, he played the golf? Yes, he was a king golfer. It's mainly owing to him that this work is being carried forward. He had even a say in the designing of it. It was not a very good choice they made uh, of a spot to bury the body. When the men began to dig up the ground, all would have been discovered. Exactly. And that proves that they were strangers to the place. It's an excellent piece of indirect evidence. Yes, no one knew, no one who knew would bury a body there unless, unless they wanted it to be discovered. And that is clearly absurd, is it not? Yes, yes, undoubtedly absurd. Scene four. Poirot, Hastings, and Bex stand downstage of the Villa Marguerite, front door, the residence of Madame de Bru and Mart. Is Monsieur Gerard not going to accompany us on this uh, house call? Monsieur Gerard would apparently, <clears throat> would apparently prefer to conduct the case in his own way. He is conducting a test on some ash that he found. What a man. Undoubtedly, Gerard is the greatest detective alive today. I must admit, uh, though I don't care for his demeanor, his technique is quite impressive. At last, you have seen the detective you admire, the human foxhound. Is it not so, my friend? At any rate, he's doing something. If there's anything to find, he'll find it. I have half a mind tomorrow to go out and watch him work. Maybe I could learn a thing or two. Now you... Eh bien, I also have found something. A piece of lead piping. Nonsense, Poirot. You know very well that's got nothing to do with it. I mean little things, traces that may lead us infallibly to the murderers. Mon ami, a clue of two feet long is every bit as valuable as one measuring two millimeters. But it is a romantic idea that all important clues must be infinitesimal. As to the piece of lead piping having nothing to do with the crime, you say that because Gerard told you so. No, I, I, no we will say no more. Leave Gerard to his search and me to my ideas. The case seems straightforward enough, and yet, and yet, uh, mon ami, I am not satisfied. Do you know why? Because of the wristwatch that is two hours fast. Poirot. This is Madame de Bro's house. We have been arguing underneath, no? Oui. She does here with her daughter, Marta. I had headquarters run a check on her banking account. Three times in the last six weeks, that is, since Michel Renault arrived at Merlinville, Madame de Bruyne has paid large sum in notes to her banking account. Altogether, the sum totals 2,000, 200,000 francs. Dear me, that must be something like 4,000 pounds. Poirot, Hastings, and Bex all begin to walk up to the door. Precisely. Yes, there can be no doubt he was absolutely infatuated. But it remains to be seen whether she can find he confided his secret to her. She has lived here for many years, very quietly, very unobtrusively. She seems to have no friends or relations other than the acquaintances she has made in Merlinville. She never refers to the past, nor to her husband. One does not even know if he is alive or dead. There is a mystery about her. You comprehend? Bex rings the doorbell. Soon afterwards, Mart opens the door, 
When she sees the visitors, she appears afraid. Mademoiselle de Broye, we regret infinitely to disturb you, but the evidences of the law. You comprehend my compliments to Madame, your mother, and will she have the goodness to grant me a few moments interview? I will go and see. Please wait here. March goes back inside, leaving the door partially open. From inside, Madame de Bru's voice is heard. But certainly. Did you leave them outside? Madame de Bru appears in the doorframe. Mark peeks out behind her. You wish to see me, monsieur? Oui, madame. I'm investigating the death of monsieur Renault. You have heard of it, no doubt. We came to ask you whether you can uh, throw any light upon the circumstances surrounding it. I? Oui, madame. It would perhaps be better if we could speak to you alone. Ma dear. No, mama. I will not go. I am not a child. I am 22. I shall not go. You see, monsieur. Very well, madame. I have a joy. We have no reason to believe that you were in the habit of visiting the dead man at the Via in the evenings. Is that so? I deny your right to ask me such a question. Madame, we are investigating a murder. Well, what of it? I had nothing to do with the murder. Madame, we do not say that for a moment. But you know the dead man well. Did they ever confide in you as to any danger that threatened him? Never. Did he mention his life in Santiago and in the enemies he may have had there? No. Then you can give us no help at all. I fear not. I really do not see why you should come to me. Cannot his wife tell you what you want to know? Madame Renaud has told us all she can. Ah, I wonder. You wonder what? Madame. Nothing. You persist in your statement that Monsieur Renault confided nothing to you. Why should you think it likely he should confide in me? Because, Madame, a man tells his mistress what he does not always tell his wife. Ah, Monsieur, you insult me, and before my daughter. I can tell you nothing. Have the goodness to leave my house. Madame de Bro slams the door. Well, indeed. Are there any good hotels near at hand, uh, preferably with a nice restaurant? There's a small place, the Hotel de Bon, on the side of town. Only a few hundred yards down the road. Would you like a ride in my car? Where are Hastings and Bex walk downstage? No, I think a walk would do me good. I shall see you in the morning, I presume. The French police system is very marvelous. The information they possess about everyone's life, down to the most commonplace details, is extraordinary. Though he has only been here a little over six weeks, they are perfectly well acquainted with Monsieur Renault's tastes and pursuits, 
And at a moment's notice, they can produce information as to Madame de Bro's banking account and the sums that have lately been paid in. Undoubtedly, the dossier is a great institution. While he is speaking, Mart quietly enters through the door and comes downstage after them. I beg your pardon. I, I should not do this, I know. You must not tell my mother. But is it true what people say that Monsieur Renault called in a detective before he died and, and that you are he? Yes, mademoiselle, it is quite true, but how did you learn it? Francoise told Amélie. Ah, the secrecy. It is impossible in an affair of this kind. Not that it matters. <laughs> well, mademoiselle, what is it you want to know? Is uh, anyone suspected? Suspicion is in the air at present, mademoiselle. Yes, I know, but anyone in particular? What do you want to know? Monsieur Renan was always very kind to me. It is natural that I should be interested. I see. Well, mademoiselle, suspicion at present is hovering around two persons. Two? Their names are unknown, but they are presumed to be Chileans from Santiago. And now, mademoiselle, you see what comes of being young and beautiful. I have betrayed professional secrets for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. I must run back now. Maman will miss me. Marjorie enters the door. Hastings stares after her. Mon ami, is it that we are to remain planted here all night just because you have seen a beautiful young woman and your head is in a whirl? But she is beautiful. A goddess, Perot, did I not say? As for me, I still see only the girl with anxious eyes. Do not set your heart on Marc Dubreau. She's not for you, that one. Take it from Papa Poirot. A malformation of the gray cells make one side quite easily with the face of a Madonna. Poirot, you cannot mean that you suspect an innocent woman like this. Do not excite yourself. I have not said that I suspected her, but you must admit that her anxiety to know about the case is somewhat unusual. For once, I see further than you do. Her anxiety is not for herself, but for her mother. My friend, as usual, you see nothing at all. Madame de Bro is very well able to look after herself without her daughter worrying about her. I admit I was teasing you just now, but all the same, I repeat what I said before. Do not set your heart on that girl. She is not for you. I, Hercule Poirot, know it. Sacre, ah, if only I could remember where I had seen that face. What face? The daughter's? No, the mother's. But yes, it is as I tell you, it was a long time ago when I was still with the police in Belgium. I had never actually seen the woman before, but I have seen her picture and in connection with some case, I rather fancy that. Yes. I may be mistaken, but I rather fancy that it was a murder case. Scene five. Arnold and Jeanne enter downstage of the rest of the set, an implied apartment. The lighting connotes that this event is in the past. Arnold is carrying a suitcase and Jeanne is holding a baby. Arnold sets down his suitcase and looks around satisfied. I think we will live in very modest fashion here. It's very small, don't you think? Oh, never mind that. We'll make Perry our home, dear. 
I'm only a janitor partner now, but in a few years, we can really start to indulge in the good things in life. George enters carrying more luggage. Uh, where should I set this? Oh, anywhere you like. Jean, this is George Canot. He is a bright young lawyer who works with my firm. Is he now? Jeanne hands the baby to Arnold and holds out her hand for George. He takes it and kisses it slowly. Jones. Scene six. Hastings is wandering around near the shed on the links. Gerard is putting the jar with a dagger into the shed. Excuse me, Gerard? What is it? Pardon me this, but I was hoping to watch you work again this morning. Have you discovered a... Where is your old friend? Did he tire out already? All the better. No, he's back at the house, looking at the footprints in the garden beds. He's wasting his time. I already inspected those. The only footprints there are from the gardener. He was working the day before yesterday, so his boots left imprints on the wet soil. It has nothing to do with the case. I've known Poirot for a while. His methods may be odd, but he gets results. Maybe he used to. Gerard locks the shed, then hands the key to Hastings. Return this key for me. We've locked up the body and all the evidence inside until we figure out what to do with it. I'd do it myself, but I really don't have time for errands. Gerard exits. Hastings stands there for a minute, then goes upstage and sits on the bench dejected. He hears rustling in the bushes behind him and turns around. Suddenly, Cinderella appears out of the bushes. You! I saw you here and I thought, my only aunt! What's he doing here? For the matter of that, what are you? Well, when I last saw you, you were trotting off to your private detective like a good little boy. When I last saw you, you were trotting off to find your sister like a good little girl. By the way, how is your sister? How kind of you to ask. My sister is well and found, thank you. She's here with you. Uh, she's off in town somewhere. I don't believe you've got a sister. If you have, her name is Snow White. Do you remember mine? Cinderella. But you're going to tell me the real one now, aren't you? <laughs> Not even while you're why you're here? Oh, that. Well, I suppose you've heard of actors resting. Hmm, at expensive French watering places? Or dirt cheap if you know where to go. Still, you'd had no intention of coming here when I met you two days ago. We all have our disappointments. There now, I've told you quite as much as is good for you. You've not yet told me what you're doing here. How's your vacation with the detective? If it's a vacation, it's a disappointing one. Perhaps you've heard about this crime here at the Villa Genevieve? You don't mean you're in on that? Mm-hmm. Well, if that doesn't beat the band, talk me around. I want to see all the horrors. What do you mean? What I say. Bless the boy, didn't I tell you I doted on crimes? What do you think I'm imperiling my ankles for in these high-heeled shoes over this stubble? I've been nosing around for days. Try the front way in, but that old stick in the mud of a French policeman wasn't taking any. So I thought I'd come around back through the uh, Ville Marguerite garden. It's a real piece of luck happening on you this way. Come on, show me all the sights. But uh, look here, wait a minute, I, I, I can't. No one's allowed in. 
They're awfully strict. What, aren't you and the friend the big bugs? Why are you so keen? And what is it you want to see? Uh, everything. Uh, the place where it happened, and the weapon, and the body, and any fingerprints or interesting things like that. I've never had a chance of being right in on a murder like this one before. It'll last me all my life. Come off your high horse. When you get called into this job, did you put your nose in the air and say it was a nasty business and you wouldn't be mixed up in it? No, but... If you'd been here on a holiday, wouldn't you be nosing around just the same as I am? Of course you would. I'm a man. You're a woman. Well, your idea of a woman is someone who gets on a chair and shrieks if she sees a mouse. That's all prehistoric. But you will show me around, won't you? You see, it, it might make a big difference to me. In what way? Well, they're keeping all the reporters out. I, I thought I might make a big scoop with one of the papers. You don't know how, how much they pay for a bit of inside stuff. Cinderella puts Please. her hand in Hastings. He gives in. There's a deer. The murder happened right around here on the golf course. Poor fellow was found face down, knife in the back, in a freshly dug grave. Ooh, exciting. Oh, was the knife anything special? Oh, ruby encrusted? No, it was a gift from the sun, Jack. A souvenir of the war. Oh, could I see it? I shouldn't. It's in the shed here with the body. Oh, well, we must see it now. It's quite gruesome, you know and unpleasant <laughs> me for the horrors come along cinderella leads hastings towards the shed she sees that it is locked you have the key hastings holds up the key that gerard gave him i have hastings unlocks the shed hastings and cinderella enter we hear their voices but do not see them you see this is where he was stabbed in the back with with what this dagger. A thud is suddenly heard. Cinderella has fallen to the ground. You're faint. Come out of here. It's been too much for you. Water. Rick. Water. Hastings leaves the shed and exits, returning shortly with a glass of water. He re-enters the shed and gives it to her. Take me out of here. Quickly. Quickly. Hastings supports her arm, helping her walk out. He closes the door of the shed behind them, but does not lock it. That's better. Oh, that was horrible. Why did you ever let me go in? I did my best to stop you, you know. I suppose you did. Well, goodbye. Look here, you can't start off like that all alone. I insist on accompanying you back to Merlinville. <laughs> Nonsense. I I'm quite all right now. Just walk me to the door so I don't have to leave through the bushes. Where are you staying? I'd rather like to see you again. Oh, I am at the Hotel de Bain. It's a little place, but quite good. Come and look me up sometime soon. I will. And perhaps you'll tell me your name now. Never! Scene 7. Arnold, Jeanne, and George stand together in the implied apartment. The lighting again connotes the past. I'll get more wine. After all, it is my specialty. Arnold laughs at what is apparently an inside joke that only he appreciates. He exits. 
Jeanne immediately puts herself into George's arms. George, you must stop coming by. And not see my darling Jeanne, never. <laughs> How much longer? I can't stand you not being mine. Soon. Uh, George, you must stop coming by. And not see my darling Jeanne, <laughs> never. Oh, but how much longer? I can't stand you not being mine. Soon. You and I will find a way. Arnold re-enters, carrying two wine glasses. Hiram enters with him as well. Jeanne and Georges immediately separate. Arnold is oblivious. I hope you don't mind, but I have invited over a new acquaintance, Mr. Hiram P. Trapp. Apparently, he knew our family in Lyon, if you can believe it. He's a native of the United States and extremely wealthy. How wealthy? I believe it. It's rude to ask. Well, for a lady such as yourself, I might be willing to tell. Jeanne extends her hand. Hiram kisses it. Scene eight. Inside the Villa Genevieve, Poirot, Girard are talking. Bex is watching them. Hastings enters. So, you think these footprints are of no importance? Not the least in the world. I do not agree with you. I have a little idea that these footprints are the most important thing we have seen yet. Mr. Poirot, I'm afraid he's right. We checked the footprints and they belong to the gardener's shoes. All the footmarks in the bed were made by the same boot. You think so? Eh bien, I agree with you there. That is not the problem. Come, I will show you. Poirot lead Bex and Gerard out through the upstage door and points to a flower bed just below the window next to the door. This bed here? We. Oui. But I see no footprints? No, there are none. Gerard seems furious at Poirot. Bex tries to alleviate the situation while leading them back into the house by the table. Monsieur Gerard, anything come of your investigation so far? Do you have any leads on the assassins or where you might, where they might be now. I know at least where they have come from. Coma. Gerard takes the stub of a cigarette and an unlighted match and lays them on the table. What do you see here? A cigarette end and a match. And what does that tell you? It tells me nothing. Ah, you haven't made a study of these things. That's not an ordinary match. Not in this country, at least. It's common enough in South America. Luckily, it's unlighted. Unlighted. I mightn't have no recognized it otherwise. Evidently, one of the men threw away his cigarette end and lit another, spilling one match out of the box as he did so. And the other match? Which match? The one he did light his cigarette with. You have found that also? No. Perhaps you didn't search very thoroughly. Didn't search thoroughly? I see you love a joke, Monsieur Poirot. But in any case, match or no match, the cigarette end would be sufficient. It is a South American cigarette with licorice pectoral paper. Is it possible they belong to Monsieur Bernal? Remember, it is only two years since he returned from South America. <clears throat> no, I have already searched among the effects of Monsieur Renault. The cigarettes he smoked and the matches he used are quite different. You do not think it odd that these strangers should come unprovided with a weapon, with gloves, with a spade, and they should so conveniently find all these things? Undoubtedly, it is strange. Indeed, without the theory that I hold, it would be inexplicable. 
an accomplice. An accomplice was in the house. Or outside it. Indeed, the door was open for them, but it could just as easily be opened for, from outside by someone who possessed a key. But who did possess the key? As for that, no one who possesses one is going to admit the fact if they can help it. But several people might have one. Monsieur Jack Renault, the son, for instance. He might have lost the key or had it stolen from him. One of the servants may have had a love, especially the younger one. It is easy to take an impression of a key and have one cut. There are many possibilities. Then there is another person who I should judge is exceedingly likely to have such a thing in her keeping. Who is that? Madame de Bruyere. Uh, so you have heard about that, have you? I hear everything. Tell me one thing, Monsieur Gerard. Your theory allows for the door being opened. It does not explain why it was left open. When they departed, would it not have been natural for them to close it behind them? If a small, if a police officer had a chance to come up to the houses, it's sometimes done to see that all is well in small villages such as this. They might have been discovered and overtaken almost at once. But they forgot it. A mistake, I grant you. I do not agree with you. The door being left open was the result of either design or necessity, and any theory that does not admit that fact is bound to prove vain. You don't agree with me, eh? Well, what strikes you particularly about the case? Let's hear your views. One thing presents itself to me as being significant. Tell me, Monsieur Gerard, does nothing strike you as familiar about this case? Is there nothing it reminds you of? Familiar? Reminds me of... I can't say offhand. I don't think so, though. You are wrong. A crime almost precisely similar has been committed before. When? And where? Ah, that, unfortunately, I, I cannot for the moment remember, but I shall do so. I, I had hoped you might be able to assist me. <sighs> there have been many affairs of masked men. I cannot remember the details of them all. These crimes all resemble each other more or less. There is such a thing as the individual touch. I am speaking to you now as a, of the psychology of crime. Monsieur Gerard knows quite well that each criminal has his particular method and that the police, when called in to investigate, say, a case of burglary, can often make a shrewd guess at the offender simply by the peculiar method he has employed. Man is an unoriginal animal unoriginal within the law in his daily respectable life, equally unoriginal outside the law. If a man commits a crime, any other crime he commits will resemble it closely. The English murderer who disposed of his wives in succession by drowning them in their baths was a case in point. Had he varied his methods, he might have escaped detection to this day, but he obeyed the common dictates of human nature, arguing that what had once succeeded would succeed again and he paid the penalty of his lack of originality. And the point of all this? That when you have two crimes precisely similar in design and execution, you find the same brain behind them both. I am looking for that brain, Monsieur Gerard, and I shall find it. Here, we have a true clue, a psychological clue. You may know all about cigarettes and match ends, Monsieur Gerard, but I have pure Poirot, know the mind of man. For your guidance, I will also advise you 
of one fact which might fail to be brought to your notice. The wristwatch of Madame Reynaud on the day following the tragedy has gained two hours. It might interest you to examine it. Perhaps it was in the habit of gaining? As a matter of fact, I am told it did. That's that then. All the same, two hours is a good deal. Then there is the matter of the footprints in the flower bed. Not this again, Poirot. As things, one must not only look for the clues that still remain for us to see, but also... Francois enters, interrupting Poirot. Uh, Monsieur Stono, the secretary, has just arrived from England. Uh, may he enter? Oh, well, yes, send him in. Francois exits and then shortly re-enters with Stoner, who hangs his coat on the coat rack. Bex approaches, Stoner extending a hand. I take it you're the head examiner in charge of this case. Pleased to meet you. Well, pardon me, Monsieur Stoner. We were not expecting you. Your name? Uh, Gabriel Stoner. I heard about the incident and, brought the f and bought the first train I could. Uh, how is Miss Renard? Uh, is she bearing up fairly well? It must have been an awful shock to her. This is a terrible business. Terrible, terrible. Uh, permit me to introduce Monsieur Gerard, who we brought down from Sweat in Paris. This gentleman is Monsieur Hercule Poirot. Monsieur Renault sent for him, but he arrived too late to do anything to avert the tragedy. A friend of Monsieur Poirot, Captain Hastings, and I am Lucien Bex. Sent for you, uh, did he? You did not know, then, that Monsieur Renault contemplated calling in the detective. No, I didn't. Uh, but it doesn't surprise me a bit. Why? Uh, because the old man was rattled. Uh, I don't know what it was all about. Uh, he didn't confide in me. Uh, we weren't on those terms. Uh, but rattled he was, and badly. What terms were you on? I've been Miss Renaud's secretary for almost two years, uh, since he first arrived from South America. How did you come to be employed by Monsieur Renault? Uh, I met him through a mutual friend, uh, and he offered me the post. A thundering good boss he was, too. You mentioned South America. Did he ever talk to you much about his life there, or in Santiago? I know he was there a few times, but never mentioned a special incident having occurred there. Did he ever say anything about, at all about a secret? Not that I can remember, uh, but uh, for all that, there was a mystery about him. Uh, I never heard him speak of his boyhood, for instance, or any other incident prior to his arrival in South America. Uh, he was a French-Canadian by birth, I believe, uh, but I've, I've never heard him speak of his life in Canada. He could shut up like a clam if he liked. So as far as you know, however, he had no enemies. And you can give us no clues as to when the secret to obtain possession of which he might have been murdered. That's so. Monsieur Stonar, have you ever heard the name of Duveen in connection with Monsieur Renault? Duveen? Duveen? Well, I don't think I have, and yet it seems familiar. Do you know of a lady, uh, a friend of Monsieur Renault, whose name is Bella? Bella Duveen. That's the name, isn't it? Uh, it's curious. I'm, I'm sure I know it, but for the moment, I can't remember in what connection. 
Bella Duvine. Is that the full name of our letter of our love letter signed Bella? That means that may be so. Love letter? I, I don't quite get you. You understand, Monsieur Stonard. The case is like this. There must be no reservations. You might perhaps, through a feeling of consideration for Madame Renault, for whom I gather you have a great esteem and affection, you might, enfin, there must be absolutely no reservations. Uh, where does Miss Renault come in? Uh, I have an immense respect and affection for that lady. Uh, she, she's a very wonderful and usual type, uh, but I don't quite see how my reservations or otherwise could affect her. Not as this Bella Duvin should prove to have been something more than a friend to her husband. Ah, I get you now, but, but I'll bet my bottom dollar that you're wrong. The old man never so much as looked at a petticoat. He just adored his own wife. Uh, they were the most devoted couple I know. Monsieur Stonal, we owe absolute proof. A love letter written by this Bella to Monsieur Renault, accusing him of having tired of her. Moreover, we have further proof at the time of his death, he was carrying an intrigue with a French woman, a Madame de Bruyne, who rents the adjoining via. And this is the man who, according to you, never looked at the petticoat. Hold on, you're barking up the wrong tree. I knew, Paul Renard, and what you've been saying is utterly impossible. There's some other explanation. What other explanation could there be? What leads you to think it was a love affair? Madame de Bruyne was in the habit of visiting him here in the evenings. Also, since Monsieur Renault came to the Via Genevieve, Madame de Bruyne was, has paid large sums of money into the bank in notes. In all, the amount of those 4,000 pounds of your English money. Hmm, I guess that's right. I transmitted him those sums at his request but but it wasn't an intrigue. Uh, what else could it be? Blackmail. That's what it was. Ah, for la una vie. Blackmail. The old man was being bled and at a good rate too. Uh, 4,000 in a couple of months. Uh, I, I told you there was a mystery about Renard. I don't know what Madame uh, de Brode knew, but... Uh, it was enough to put the screws on. It is possible. Decidedly, it is possible. Uh, possible? It's certain. Uh, tell me, have you asked Miss Renaud uh, about this love affair stunt of yours? No, monsieur. We did not wish to occasion her any distress if it could be reasonably avoided. Distress? What? She'd laugh in your face. I tell you, she and Renard were one couple in a hundred. Monsieur Stonar, the gardener, Auguste, has he been long with Monsieur Renault? Well, over a year. Uh, before that, he worked for some people in Gloucestershire wh whom I knew well. Poirot thinks about the information. Meanwhile, Bex rings a bell to summon the servants. Denise enters. Bex sends her upstairs to fetch Madame Renault. Madame Renault then descends the stairs, accompanied by Denise. Bex pulls out a chair for her at the table. 
Stoner sits next to her, holding her hand in sympathy. You wish to ask me something, monsieur? With your permission, madame. I understand your husband was a French Canadian by birth. Can you tell me anything of his youth or upbringing? My husband was always very reticent about himself, monsieur. He came from the Northwest, I know, but I fancied that he had a unhappy childhood. I never cared to speak of that time. Our life was lived entirely in the present and in the future. Was there any mystery in his past life? Nothing so romantic, I am sure. True. We must not permit ourselves to get melodramatic. There is one thing more. They've got an, an extraordinary idea into their heads, Mr. Renard. They actually fancy that Mr. Renard was, was carrying on an intrigue with a Madame de Bro, who, who it seems uh, lives next door. We regret to cause you pain, madame, but have you any reason to believe that madame de Bruy was your husband's mistress? <laughs> she may have been. The owner is completely stunned. Suddenly a door is heard violently opening and shutting and Jack enters. He heads straight to madame Renault, ignoring everyone else. Mother. Jack, my dearest, what brings you here? You were to sail on the Azora from Shebel two days ago. Oh, uh, my son, messieurs. Ah, so you did not sail on the Azora. No, monsieur, as, as I was about to explain, the Anzora was detained for 24 hours because of engine trouble. I happened to buy an evening paper and I saw the account of the, the terrible tragedy that had befallen us. My, my poor father, my poor, poor father. So you did not sail? No. After all, it, it does not matter now. Sit down, Madame Renault. I beg of you. My sympathy for you is profound. It must have been a terrible shock for, to you to learn the news the way you did. However, it is most fortunate that you were prevented from sailing. I'm in hopes that you may be able to give us just the information we need to clear up this mystery. Jack hangs up his coat on the coat rack and then sits down. I am at your disposal. Ask me any question you please. But to begin with, I understand that this journey was being undertaken at your father's request. Quite so. I received the instructions by telegram, bidding me to proceed without delay to Santiago. The object of this journey? I have no idea. Quoi? No, see, here is the telegram. Jack hands Bex a slip of paper from his pocket. Bex reads it. Proceed immediately. Cherbourg and Park and Zora sailing tonight. Buena series. Ultimate destination Santiago. As instructions will await you. Buena series. Do not fail. Matters of utmost importance. Renault. And there have been no previous correspondence on the matter. 
I assumed it was connected with business interests. I never spent much time in South America, really. I was educated in England and spent most of my holidays there as well. Then the war broke out and I was 17. You served in the English Flying Corps, did you not? Yes, sir. I should like to put a few questions on my own account, Monsieur Bex. By all means, Monsieur Gerard, as you Gerard wish. Gerard sits down in the chair closest to Jack. Were you on good terms with your father, Monsieur Renault? Certainly I was. You assert that positively? Yes. No little disputes, eh? Everyone may have a difference of opinion now and then. Quite so, quite so. But if anyone were to assert that you had a violent quarrel with your father on the eve of your departure for Paris, that person without doubt would be lying. Looks like his boast about knowing everything wasn't idle. We, we, we did have an argument. Ah, an argument. In the course of that argument, did you use the phrase, when you are dead, I can do as I please? I may have done. I don't know. In response to that, did your father say, but I am not dead yet? To which you responded, I wish you were. I request an answer, please. Mr. Jack English sweeps his hand across the table, knocking a paper knife onto the floor. What does it matter? You may as well know. Yes, I did quarrel with my father. I dare say I said all those things. I was so angry that I cannot remember what was said. I was furious. I could almost, I almost have killed him at that moment. There, make the most of that. That is all. You would without doubt prefer to continue the interrogatory, Monsieur Bex. Ah, uh, yes, exactly. What was the subject of your quarrel? I declined to state. Monsieur Renault, it is not permitted to trifle with the law. What was the subject of your quarrel? I will inform you if you like. You know. Certainly I know. The subject of the quarrel was Mademoiselle Marthe Dubrow. Uh, is this so, monsieur? Yes, I love Mademoiselle Dubrow. And I wish to marry <laughs> When I informed my father of the fact, he flew at once into a violent rage. And Naturally, I could not stand hearing the girl I loved insulted, and I, too, lost my temper. You are aware of this attachment, madame? I feared it. Mother! You, too! Marty's is as good as she is beautiful. What can you have against her? I have nothing against Mademoiselle de Bru in any way, but I should prefer you to marry an Englishwoman. Or, if a French woman, not one who comes from a dubious family. I ought perhaps to have spoken to my husband on the subject, but I hoped that it was only a boy and girl flirtation which would blow over all the quicker if no one was taking notice of it. So when you informed your father of your intentions toward Mademoiselle de Brault, he was surprised. He seemed completely taken aback. And then he ordered me peremptorily to dismiss any such idea from my mind. He would never give his consent to such a marriage. He said it was because of some mystery concerning the mother and her past. I answered that I was marrying Mart, not her mother or her secrets, but 
He would hear none of it. I lost my head and we quarreled in earnest. That must have been when I made the remark about doing what I pleased after his death. You were aware then of the terms of your father's will. I knew he had left half his fortune to me and the other half didn't trust to mother to come, uh, to come to me at her death. You did not know then that he revised the will so that all of this money would be under the care of your mother. What? Why would he do that? After I left, my father wrote me several letters, affectionate in tone. Even though he did not refer to the disagreement, I never thought our quarrel had produced such an effect. What about Mark? After my father and I shouted at each other, I realized, I suddenly realized I was in danger of missing my train to Paris. I had to run for the station, still in a white heat of fury. However, once well away, I calmed down. I wrote to Mart telling her what had happened and her reply soothed me still further. She pointed out to me that we had only to be steadfast and any opposition was bound to give way at last. Our affection for each other must be tried and proved and when my parents realized that it was no light infatuation on my part, they would doubtless relent towards us. Are you acquainted with the name Duvin Mijurinol, Abella? Duvin? Jack slowly bends down to pick up the paper knife from before. He raises his head and meets the eyes of Gerard and Poirot, who are staring at him. Uh, Duvin. No, I, I can't say I am. Will you read the letter at least, Monsieur Vernon? And tell me if you have any idea as to who the person was who addressed it to your father. Bex hands Jacques the love letter from off of the table. He reads it, emotion and indignation building. Addressed to my father. We, oui. we found it in his pocket of his coat. Does... As yet, no. Can you give us any clue as to the writer? I have no idea whatsoever. A most mysterious case. Ah, but I suppose we can now rule out the letter altogether. What do you think, Monsieur Zerard? It does not seem to lead us anywhere. It certainly does not. And yet, they promised at the beginning to be such a beautiful and simple case. Ah, yes. Let me see. Where were we? Oh, the weapon. I fear this may give you pain, Madame Monsieur Renan. I understand it was a present from you to your mother. Very sad, very distressing. Do you mean that it was with an aeroplane wire paper cutter that my father was was killed? But, but the, it's impossible. A little thing like that? Where is it? Can I see it? Is it is it still in the body? Oh, no, it has been removed. You would like to see it, to make sure. It would be as well, perhaps, though Madame has already identified it. Still, I will fetch it immediately. Bex exits. Stoner crosses over to Jack and shakes his hand warmly. Gerard stares at Jack. Poirot beckons Hastings. One little moment, my friend. Come with me. Poirot leads Hastings over to the coat rack. Hold this for me. Poirot hands Hastings one end of a measuring tape and has him hold it at the top of the, one of the coats. Poirot then extends it to the bottom. He lets out mm. a satisfied grunt. Mm. 
What was that all about? Beck suddenly rushes into the room. Monsieur Gerard! Monsieur Poirot! What is it? The dagger, it is gone. Comment? Gone? Vanished, disappeared. The glass shards are contained in this empty. What? Impossible. Why, only this morning I saw... What is it you say? This morning. I saw it there this morning. About half an hour ago, to be accurate. You went to the sheds then. How did you get the key? Mr. Gerard gave it to me. Uh, only to put it away. What were you doing in there? I have committed a grave fault, for which I must crave your indulgence. Eh bien. Proceed, monsieur. The fact of the matter is, I met a young lady, an acquaintance of mine. She displayed a great desire to see everything that was to be seen, and I... Well, in short, I used the key to show her the body. Ah, par example! But this is a great fault you have committed, there, Captain Hastings. I know. Nothing that you can say could be severe. <laughs> ah, this lady was without doubt young and beautiful, Nespa. Perhaps she had the auburn hair you like so much. She did not. But did you not reclose and lock the door when you departed? That's just it. That's what I blame myself for so terribly. My friend was upset at the sight. She nearly fainted. I got her some water and afterwards insisted on accompanying her back to town. In the excitement, I forgot to relock the door. Then for 20 minutes at least. Exactly. Oh, there's nothing to cause this other than deplorable. You find it deplorable, monsieur? Certainly I do. It is without precedent. I find it admirable. Admirable? Monsieur Gerard? Precisely. Because we know now that the assassin, or an accomplice of the assassin, has been near the villa within the last half an hour. He risked a good deal to gain possession of that dagger. Perhaps he feared that fingerprints might be discovered on it. Did we not hear there were none? Perhaps he could not be sure. Hmm, you are wrong, Monsieur Gerard. The assassin wore gloves, so he must have been sure. I do not say it was the assassin himself. It may have been an accomplice who was not aware of the, that fact. Il son marisigné les accomplices. Scene nine. Hiram and Jin are together in the implied apartment. The lighting connoting the past. They are drinking wine. You simply must tell me about these rumors I keep hearing. My lips are sealed. But found in fact. All I'll say is that my husband has been entrusted with some important papers for safekeeping which concerns far-reaching European importance. You must be so nervous keeping such a secret. Oh, I am. Shen, I have no desire to be disrespectful. You, you know I care for you, love you even, and were you free, I would ask you to be my wife. But as it stands with your husband, Arnold, we must remain simply platonic. Scene 10. Poirot and Hastings sit at a table in the restaurant at the Hotel de Bain. The next day, they are eating breakfast. Why did you measure that overcoat? Parbleu, to see how long it was. 
Your incurable habit of making a mystery out of nothing never fails to irritate me. Then tell me, my friend, what is it that intrigues you about this case? I was just thinking about something Madame Renault said. After all, it does not matter now. What does she mean by that? The words were enigmatical, significant. It is possible that she knows more than we supposed. You are quite right, Estings. From the beginning, I have been sure she was keeping something back. At first, I suspected her, if not of inspiring, at least of conniving at the crime. You suspected her? But certainly, but she benefits enormously. In fact, by this new will, she is the only person to benefit. So, from the start, she was singled out for attention. You may have noticed that I took an early opportunity of examining her wrists. I wish to see whether there was any possibility that she had gagged and bound herself. Eh bien, I saw at once that there was no fake. The cords had actually been drawn so tight as to cut into the flesh. That ruled out the possibility of her having committed the crime single-handed. But it was still possible for her to have connived at it or to have been the instigator with, with an accomplice. Moreover, the story as she told it was singularly familiar to me. The masked man that she could not recognize, the mention of the secret. I had heard or, or read all these things before. Another little detail confirmed my belief that she was not speaking the truth. The wristwatch, Hastings. The wristwatch. Again, that wristwatch. You make all these confounded mysteries and it's useless asking you to explain. You always like keeping everything up your sleeve until the last minute. Do not enrage yourself, my friend. I will explain if you wish, but not a word to Gerard. Say on thunder. Hmm? He treats me like an old one of no importance. We shall see. You have my word. Say bien. Let us employ our little gray cells. Tell me, my friend, at what time, according to you, did the tragedy take place? Why, at two o'clock or thereabouts. You remember Mrs. Renault told us that she heard the clock strike when the men were in the room. Exactly. And, and on the strength of that, you, Bex, and everyone else accept the time without further question. But I, Hercule Poirot, say that Madame Renault lied. The crime took place at least two hours earlier. But the doctor... He declared that the crime had taken place between 10 and 7 hours previously. Mon ami, for some reason, it was imperative that the crime should seem to have been taken place later than it actually did. You have read of a smashed watch or clock reading the exact hour of a crime? So, that the time should not rest on Ms. Jules Reynolds' testimony alone. Someone moved one of the hands of that wristwatch to 2 o'clock and then dashed it violently to the ground. But as often the case, they defeated their own object. The glass was smashed, but the mechanism of the watch was uninjured. It was a most disastrous maneuver on their part, for it at once drew my attention to two points. First, that Madame Renault was lying. Secondly, that there must be some vital reason for the postponement of the time. But what reason could there be? That is the question. Then we have the whole mystery. As yet, I, I cannot explain it. There is only one idea that presents itself to me as having a, a possible connection. And that is? 
the last train left Merleville, 17 minutes past 12. So that the crime apparently taking place some two hours earlier, anyone leaving by that train would have an unimpeachable alibi. Perfect, Hastings. You have it. But we, we must inquire at the station. Surely they cannot have failed to notice two foreigners who left by that train. We must go there at once. You think so, Estings? Of course. Let's go there now. Go. By all means, if you wish, mon ami. But if you go, I should not ask for particulars of two foreigners. Lala, you do not believe all that rigor morally, do you? The masked men and all the rest of set histoire là. You heard me say to Gerard, did you not, that all the details of this crime were familiar to me? Eh bien, that presupposes one of two things. Either the brain that planned the first crime also planned this one, or else an account read of a cause celebre unconsciously remained in our assassin's memory and prompted the details. I shall be able to pronounce definitely on that after. But what about the mention of a secret and Santiago? Undoubtedly, there was a, a secret in Major Reynolds' life. There can be no doubt about that. On the other hand, the word Santiago, to my mind, is a red herring, dragged continuously across the track to put us off the scent. Oh, be assured, Estes, the danger that threatened Major Reynolds was not in Santiago. It was near at hand, in France. And the match and cigarette end found near the body? What of them? Planted. Deliberately planted there for Gerard for, or, or one of his tribe to find. Ah, he is smart. Gerard can, he can do his tricks. So can a good retriever dog. He comes in so pleased with himself. For hours he has crawled on his stomach. See what I have found, he says. And then again to me, what do you see here? Me, I answer with profound and deep truth. Nothing. And Gerard, the great Gerard, he laughs, he thinks to himself, oh, that he is imbecile, this old one. But we shall see. Then all this story of the masked men. is false. What really happened? One person could tell us, Madame Renault, but she will not speak. Threats and entreaties would not move her. A remarkable woman, that, Hastings. I recognized her as soon as I saw her that I had to deal with a woman of unusual character. At first, as I told you, I was inclined to suspect her of being concerned in the crime. Afterwards, I altered my opinion. What made you do that? Her spontaneous and genuine grief at the sight of her husband's body. I could swear that agony and that cry of hers was genuine. Yes. One cannot mistake these things. I beg your pardon, my friend. One can always be mistaken. That is why I turned up her eyelids and felt her pulse. There was no deception. The swoon was genuine. She was genuinely anguished and grieved. At that point, it was also unnecessary for her to demonstrate that. No, Monsieur Renault was not her husband's murderess, but why has she lied? She lied about the wristwatch. She lied about the masked men. She lied about a third thing. Tell me, Estes, what is your explanation of the open door? Well, I suppose it was an oversight. They forgot to shut it. That is the explanation of Gerard. 
it does not satisfy me. There is a meaning behind the open door, which for a moment I, I, I cannot fathom. One thing I am fairly sure of, they did not leave through the door. They left by the window. What? Precisely. But there were no footmarks in the flower bed underneath. No, and there ought to have been. Listen, Estes, the gardener, August. August planted those beds that afternoon. That is why his boot prints were all over the one bed, but in the other, none. You see, someone had passed that way. Someone who, to obliterate their footprints, smoothed over the surface of the bed with a rake. Where did they get a rake? Where did they got the spade and the gardening gloves? There is no difficulty about that. But if she lied about all those things, Poirot, <laughs> I see it now. She must be shielding somebody. Yes, shielding someone or screening someone, one of the two. In the meantime, although we know more, a great deal more than we did, we are no nearer to solving the mystery of who killed Mr. Renault. No, in fact, we are a great deal further off. But tell me more about this girl from your indiscretion. Oh, I... You mean yesterday morning? What is her name, this charming young lady? I have to confess, I don't know. She only gave it as Cinderella, but I highly doubt that's her real name. I met her on the train to France and we st struck it up quite well. And then she showed up here, unexpectedly. How romantic. Journeys end in lovers' meetings. Is that not the same? Don't be an ass, Poirot. Yesterday was Mademoiselle de Bru. Today it was Mademoiselle Cinderella. Whoa, what a heart you have, Estings. Oh, it is all very well to rag me. Mademoiselle de Bru is a very beautiful girl, but I never fancy her exactly. As for Cinderella, she was quite amusing to talk to just for a railway journey, journey but I don't suppose I shall ever see her again. Why not? Did she never tell you how to contact her? She doesn't seem like the kind of girl I would ever, should ever get keen on. I'm much more old-fashioned, and she's... different. That kind of pairing, it never works. Perhaps you are right, mon ami. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, it is as you say. But there is always the hundredth time. Mademoiselle Cinderella. He's staying at the Hotel d'Angleterre. You told me, did you not? Uh, no, the Hotel de Bain. True. I forgot. Hastings does not remember mentioning the hotel to Perrault. But Perrault has become absorbed in his food, and Hastings assumes that he made a mistake. Perrault takes out his watch and looks at it. The train to Paris leaves in 20 minutes. I should be starting. Paris? That is what I said, mon ami. You're going to Paris, but why? To look for the murder of Monsieur Renault. You think he is in Paris? I am quite certain he is not, but I believe there is quite necessary information that can be found there. I shall not be away long. Hopefully I'll be back by this afternoon. While I'm gone, see if you can cultivate the society of Monsieur Renault's son, Mademoiselle Marc too. That reminds me. I meant to ask you how you knew about those two. Mon ami, I know human nature. Draw together a boy like young Renault, 
and a beautiful girl like Mademoiselle Mart, the result is often almost inevitable. Then the quarrel, it was money or a woman and I decided on the latter. I made my guess and I was right. And that's why you warned me against setting my heart on the lady. You already suspected that she loved young Renault. At any rate, I saw that she had anxious eyes. What do you mean by that, Poirot? I fancy, my friend, that we shall see before very long, but uh, I must start. Poirot and Hastings stand up. Poirot puts his arms out towards Hastings. He does not lift his arms in return. You permit that I embrace you? Ah, no. I forget that is not the English custom. Un poignet de manolo. They shake hands. Poirot exits. Hastings sits down, thinking. The waiter walks by, and Hastings waves him over. Yes, monsieur. I wish to see a lady who is staying here at the Hotel de Banque. A young English lady, dark-haired. I'm not sure of her name. That is not a very precise description. She is American, possibly. Shorter than I. I can look into the matter if you wish, monsieur. Thank you. Monsieur will pardon me, but he is connected, is he not, with the affair at Via Genevieve? Yes, why? Monsieur has not heard the news, though. What news? That there has been another murder last night. What? Who? I heard through my wife's sister, Denise. She said it was a man, a stranger. They found him by the same place they found the other man, and that is not all. He is stabbed, stabbed to the heart with the same dagger. End act one. Poirot. Hercule Poirot, Ricardo Padilla. Hastings. Uh, uh, Ian Meadmore. Gerard. Gerard, Tyler Brown. Bex. LeJean Bex, Cameron Lee Conlon. Madame Renault. Carol Freisinger. Jack and George. Jack and George, Adam Frost, Venerick. Madame de Bru. Madame de Bru, Carol Preston. Marta. Marta, Arliss Hayes. Uh, Stoner and Lawyer. Gabriel Stoner and the Lawyer, Adam. Cinderella and Bella. Cinderella slash Bella. Judy Lewis. Denise and Jean. Uh, Denise and Jen. I'm Kate Siobhan Kiley. Francoise. Francoise, I'm Barry Allguire. Dr. Duran and Arnold. Dr. Duran and Arnold, Scott Graham. Waiter and Hiram. Hiram P. Trapp and the waiter, Gary Mason. Thank you. My name is Scott Olson and I am the director. AJ. 
Introduce yourself, please. AJ Campbell, producer. And with that, we're going to start Murder on the Links by Quarantine Players. Act one, scene one. Hastings and Cinderella sit on benches opposite each other as if on a train. Hastings is reading over a letter from... Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information about Quarantine Players, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash quarantineplayers. As Shakespeare said in Julius Caesar, if we do meet again, why, we shall smile. If not, why then, this parting was well made. Thank you.